Well, welcome again. We are currently in a sermon series based on Dr. Kelly Capick's book, You're Only Human. And I will tell you that as we've been doing this series, just about the entire time, I've really struggled to answer the question of why we are doing this as a church. Why are we looking at our limits and asking the question, how do we glorify God in our finitude? And so every week that we've been doing the sermon series, it has really been a struggle for me, at least up until the last couple of weeks, because in the last few weeks, I have completely slammed into my limits, or should I say maybe that my limits have slammed into me. As many of you know, one of the prayer requests that I just mentioned, we are navigating a situation that has been really, really difficult in this season. I have found myself in situations repeatedly where I've not known what to do, when I've given bad advice, and I've found myself in a situation that I am in way over my head. And because of this, I have felt a lot of shame. Matt Guzzi, who I didn't know was going to be here, has told me once kind of jokingly but very profoundly that shame stands for should have already mastered everything. And that is a dynamic that I have felt so acutely. And so because of that, I've started to really appreciate this sermon series. And I believe that it's actually a gift to us and can do us a lot of good. And it personally has brought me a lot of peace. And so this morning we are looking at Dr. Capick's book um, in chapter seven of his book. And it's titled, Do I Have Enough Time? Clocks, Anxiety, and Presence, which is really appropriate, right, that we started the sermon this morning with our kids here in the room until the Moody's, like, superheroes stepped in, because that being said, there would have been kind of two different perceptions of my sermon this morning in the length of time. For those of you still that are sitting here with children, my sermon may seem exceptionally long. You may want me to hurry up so you can get the kids out and get them to calm down. But for those of you that are childless this morning and don't have them, it may seem like an especially short sermon. Well, why is that? Why would we perceive the same amount of time in two specific and different ways? Well, it's because as Christian priest Dr. John O'Donohue observed, stress is a perverted relationship to time. We experience stress in our lives when we try to control time rather than merely accepting it. Whether we want time to slow down because we don't have enough of it to accomplish that which we would like to do, or if we want time to speed up because we don't want to wait on something. Think about this. Think about all the ways that you've experienced stress over the last few weeks. Have you felt overwhelmed, pressured, hurried, anxious, or spread too thin over these holidays? How good are you at resting? Did you feel compelled to check emails while you were on vacation? How much time could you spend with family or friends before needing to check your phone? How often do you take work calls at home? I can tell you, and sadly my family will tell you, that I am terrible at this. And because of this, oftentimes I experience the stress and anxiety that Dr. John O'Donohue wrote about. Dr. Capic observes that the reason that we all struggle with this more than our ancestors did is because of the advent of electricity, the clock, standardized global time, and the internet, and how they have all altered our relationship with time. Because of these inventions, our ability to be productive is no longer bound to the natural cycles of day and night, summer and winter, springtime and harvest. 
And in our Western culture, we are even more especially susceptible to this very dynamic. I learned this very thing on my first trip to Uganda back in 2012. We arrived late on a Saturday night and we had to go to bed as soon as we got there because we had to be up early to go to church where a good friend of mine was going to preach. After my my friend finished preaching, I assumed that the church service was over, but then the singing started again for the second time. And we sang for about 45 minutes. And then after we finished singing for 45 minutes, the pastor got up to preach his sermon, which then lasted about an hour. So we'd been there for about three hours or so. And finally, my jet lag and my hunger started kicking in. So I leaned over to ask our driver, who is also our translator, how much longer the service would last. And he said, well, it will end when the pastor is finished. I said, okay, that's, I get that, but can you tell me what time it is? And he sort of laughed at me and told me, we have a saying here, Westerners have watches, Africans have time. And I can tell you in my dozen or so times of going back there, I have seen this to be 1,000% true. Because in Uganda, they move to the next thing when they have completely completed and finished what needs to be done. They are controlled more by the moment, more so than by their clocks and their schedules, and their calendars. And in a lot of ways, they have it more right than we do. And God's Word tells us to take a similar perspective, and we see this in our passage this morning. And so let's take a look together at Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 1. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Let's stop there. So the author of Ecclesiastes is saying a lot, but ultimately what he's telling us is that time is a gift. It's a gift to us from something, from someone, God who exists outside of time. He created it so that we, creatures he has made in his own image, can experience the possibility of real relationships in this life. With all of their beauty and tragedy, with all of their gains and losses, but for the most part, we hate that. We don't want to just receive it, we want to control it, and verses 9 through 11 in our passage tells us why, where we read, "'What gain has the worker from his toil?' I have seen the busyness that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Because we have been created in the image of a timeless God, we long for the relationships and the work that we are doing here to be timeless but they aren't. Because all things we do here on earth will briefly flourish, but eventually they will fade back to dust. And we are told this in Genesis chapter 3. 
starting in verse 17. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now, why would God do that? Why would he set us up in that way? Why would he set eternity in our hearts but give us bodies doomed to decay, doomed to return to dust? Give us a desire to create things like him only to see them fade away. Because if you think about it, that seems a little cruel. That seems like a cosmic game of gotcha. And it's the very thing that Moses wondered as he wandered throughout the desert for 40 years waiting for God to forgive his people for their rebellion against him and allow them to enter into his promised land. And he wrote about this in Psalm 90, and this is what he wrote. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You return man to dust, and say, Return, O children of man, for a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, and for as many years as we have seen evil. Let your work be shown to your servants, and your glorious power to their children. Let the favor of, our, of the Lord our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands upon us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And so what Moses discovered during this 40 years of wondering and what he's inviting us to understand is that our finitude, the brevity of our lives, is actually an invitation to dependence on our Creator who exists outside of time. It's an invitation for us to long for heaven, to long for things when all the sadness and the death and the tears are going to go away, the afflictions that Moses wrote about, to long for the eternal, our final home, for our perspective to be heavenly, and for us to use our time here on earth as preparation for it, realizing that this earth is not our final destination. Well, easier said than done, right? I mean, how do we do something like that? Is it even possible? And if so, how on earth do we do it? Well, verse 14 in our passage this morning says, yes, it is possible. And it tells us how to do it. Now, I want to read it again, but I'm actually going to read it from a different version. This is from the CSB, and it'll be on the screen behind me. I know that everything God does will last forever. There is no adding to it or taking from it. God works so that people will be in all of him. And that's the key. That's what the author of Ecclesiastes is saying is the key to it all. The work of God that he has done for us that will bring about all in him. Well, what is it? 
What is this awe-inspiring work? Well, Jesus was asked this very question in John 6 by his disciples, and this is what he said. They asked, they, they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Notice there, the disciples say, what are the works, plural, of God that we must do? And Jesus said, the work singular of God is this, to believe in him. That in the midst of our sin and rebellion, God sent his only begotten son who has existed with him throughout all of eternity through space and time to do something for us that we could not do for ourselves. He came to save us. He came to rescue us by giving us the undeserved gift of eternal life. Later in John 6, Jesus went on to say, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on the last day. Now here's what's amazing. Jesus proved that He had the power to do this very thing by predicting it and then actually doing it. As he told his disciples in Mark 8, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And if you think about that, if you think about that claim, it's completely outlandish, but not so outlandish as the fact that he actually did it that we know this to be true, that he actually did it. But here's my question for you. What would it be like for us to actually believe this? What would it do to us? Well, given our passage and what we're talking about, one thing it would do is it would begin to change our relationship to time. Because instead of trying to be God by making time work for us, then we would actually trust God who gives and takes away our time here on earth as an invitation to place our hope in him and him alone. As David Gibson wrote in his book on Ecclesiastes, to die well means that you realize death is the limit God has placed on creatures who want to be gods. Now, when we realize that God is God and we are not, and that our time on earth is a gift to be received from him, what happens? Well, we begin to put our time here on earth and how we spend it back in its proper context, living in what God is doing rather than hoping and wishing that he would do what we want him to do, actually paying attention to what he is up to, what he is doing, or as the author of Ecclesiastes says in verses, in verses 14 and 15, perceiving. He says, I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Okay, well, again, how do we do it? Like boots on the ground. Practically, how do we do this very thing? Now, I've mentioned this a couple of times. One of the books that I've really enjoyed using in addition to Dr. Capick's book is one called None Like Him by Jen Wilkin. And she writes on this very thing. 
she quotes the Apostle Paul from Ephesians 5 and what he calls redeeming time, or as Moses said in Psalm 90, counting our days. And she points out there's, there's really three ways to redeem our time and to count our days. First, we have to let go of the past. Second, we have to let go of the future. And third, we need to enter into God's presence. C.S. Lewis wrote on this very thing in his fictional book called The Screwtape Letters, which is this fascinating book about this seasoned demon who is actually mentoring a junior demon on how to deceive humans in order to drive them away from God. And this is what he wrote regarding this. He said, the humans live in time, but our enemy, who is God in their context, destines them to eternity. He, therefore, I believe, wants them to attend chiefly to two things, to eternity itself and to that point of time which they call the present. Our business is to get them away from the eternal and from the present. So Screwtape's first suggestion is that we should become fixated on the past, and we really do this sinfully in two different ways. One is through nostalgia, and the other is through regret. Nostalgia takes our longing for heaven and places it in some idealized memory of the past, like Merle Haggard once saying, are the good times really over for good? And when we live in this way, it creates a constant discontent with our present and often results in resentment, especially towards those that we feel ruined things in our lives. Regret, on the other hand, causes us to focus on past sins and mistakes, robbing us of present joy and tempting us to believe that our future is hopeless, living in guilt and shame and feeling helpless. But in Jesus, that is not our story. In Jesus, we have a very different story, a different promise that is given to us by God that the Apostle Paul writes about in Romans 8, where he says this, for we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Now, don't miss what he said there. He said all things. He didn't say some things. He didn't say just the good things. He said all things, even your sin, even your foolishness, even your past mistakes, even the ones that you feel are unforgivable. He uses all things for good. Well, why? Why would he do that? Why would he use all things, even the worst things for good? Because he's just that loving. His grace is just that amazing. And the news is just that good. He knows what he's doing, even when we don't. Which, because of that, makes it possible for us to even let go of our future. Again, Screwtape had instructions here. This is what he said. Getting humans to live in the past is of limited value. It is far better to make them live in the future. Nearly all vices are rooted in the future. Gratitude looks to the past and love to the present. Fear, avarice, lust, and ambition look ahead. Those who live by faith in the Son of God who loves us and willingly died for us are able to trust Him with our future even when we can't tell what's going on, and even when we don't know how it's going to turn out. Now, I believe this at a head level, but I really struggle to believe this with my heart. And so as I'm preaching this to you this morning, I first and foremost am preaching it to myself, maybe even more than I'm preaching it to you. 
because one of the biggest struggles and the source of so much of my anxiety with I struggle that I struggle with every day is this very thing. This is why I've been up since 4 a.m. Because the start of a new year and all the fear and the anxiety that I carry into it. This is such a journey for me. This is such a struggle. But we all, including myself, need to hear these words from Paul near the end of Romans 8. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? So knowing this at a heart level, not just intellectually, but actually believing it enables us to trust God's heart even when we can't see his hand whether that's with unwanted singleness or childlessness or bodies that are breaking down or fledgling careers or a world that is just not going in the way that we would like it to go. But it means trusting in God and remembering and believing the promises that he made to us, that he gave to us in Isaiah 42. He said, I will lead the blind by a way they did not know. I will guide them on paths they have not known. I will turn darkness to light in front of them and rough places into ground, level ground. This is what I will do for them, and I will not abandon them. Did you hear what he said? I will not abandon them. You are not abandoned. If you are in a relationship with Jesus Christ, you have not been abandoned. Even if your circumstances lead you to believe that that is the case, you are not alone. He is with you. He will lead you where to go. He will guide you. He will turn what is dark in your life and in your heart to light. You are not abandoned. He is with you. And if you don't feel this, if you hear me say that and you say, Gordon, that sounds great, but I know that is not true for me. It may be true for everybody else in this room, but I know this is not the case for me. Fortunately, we are told how to make this reality more and more present and real in our lives. And so how do we do it? How do we experience the presence of God in a more tangible way? Well, by allowing our faith to express itself through loving obedience to his commands, we have to get on board with what he's already been doing since eternity past. A few years ago, we were living in Raleigh, and our garbage disposal broke, and I did some research, and I found out that it, replacing it was actually pretty easy, and so I went to Home Depot, and I bought a new garbage disposal, and I came home and got under the sink and started to work on it. And my now 11-year-old Hunt, who was just a little guy at the time, said, I want to help you replace this garbage disposal. And so he got right in front of me, got in my lap, and he wanted to, you know, turn off the water and turn all the wrenches and turn all the screwdrivers and replace the thing and be a part of the work that I was doing. And I will tell you, I did not need Hunt's help in that moment. Um, that in a very real sense, he just kind of got in the way. And the job probably, probably took me four to five times longer uh, doing it with him than if I would have done it myself, but it was having him in my lap, having him work, doing the work with me that communicated to him that I valued presence and time with him more than efficiency. It was a physical and tangible way for me to show him that he has a daddy who loves him, who cares for him, 
who's going to teach him and lead him and guide him and wants to be with him. And here's the thing. Scripture tells us the same dynamic is in play spiritually. It's how we experience the love and presence of God. As Jesus told us, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my Father's commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Other translations say that your joy may be complete. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Redeeming time, numbering our days, takes place when we learn to rightly see our days for what they are. They are a gift. They're an opportunity to do the work of God, to love God and to trust Him enough and to trust to obey Jesus and His command that we love one another, to offer grace to one another just as we have been given grace to forgive just as we have been forgiven. And when we do this, when we love in this way, when we live an other-centered life, loving others more than demanding that we are loved, we experience the presence of God, and that will finally bring about the peace that we all long for. God's presence gives our lives eternal worth, meaning, and direction. And in a world that is constantly scrambling for these things and for our own hearts, I can think of nothing more than we need right now. Peace, worth, security, meaning, direction. As the author of Ecclesiastes reminds us, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God has done it so that people fear or are in awe before him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of time that when you set out to create this world, the heavens and the earth, you did it essentially on the clock on six days. And you told us about morning and evening. When your son came and walked on this earth, he said that I will die and three days later, bound by time, I will be resurrected again. Father, help us to learn how to number our days, to appreciate every moment that we're in. Lord, that we would love others, that we would forgive, that we would feel grace, give grace, and in doing so, we would experience the very presence of you that you through your Holy Spirit would come and indwell us, giving us the worth, the significance, the meaning, and the direction that we so desperately need. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live for eternity even while we're here on earth, that we would live our days pointing and heading in that direction, Father. Thank you for the work that you did, sending your Son to a very undeserving people, to bring us into a relationship with you. I pray that we would live in that reality every day out of gratitude and thankfulness. In your name I pray.